welcome to this edition of the Thoracic Surgery Resident Association's podcast. The opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for teaching purposes only and should not be applied directly to patient care. Hello, my name is Stephanie Worrell. I'm at the University of Michigan and I will be interviewing Dr. Oringer, our distinguished professor emeritus of thoracic surgery here at the University of Michigan. He is a past president of the Society of Thoracic Surgeons and one of the leaders in the field of esophageal disease. Today I'll be speaking with Dr. Oringer about complex benign esophageal disease. With the very uh, increasing number of people who have undergone anti-reflux operations and the number of hiatal hernia repairs that are being performed, there will inevitably be more complex patients being referred to thoracic surgeons. Many of these patients will have recurrence of their symptoms, new symptoms, or are simply dissatisfied with their outcomes. I'd like to start with a question followed by a case scenario. Dr. Oringer, have you seen an increase in this type of population, and how are these patients being referred to you? Absolutely. Um, the, number of, the number of anti-reflux operations being done has increased dramatically in recent years, and these patients uh, who have problems after their surgery are referred in either by gastroenterologists who have been caring for them or by personal word-of-mouth referrals from other patients who have had similar problems. Okay, so our first case scenario, our case scenario is a 65-year-old female. She's referred to your clinic from a gastroenterologist for consideration of esophagectomy following a failed dilation for a stricture of the lower esophagus. She previously had undergone a laparoscopic Nissen, followed by a redo laparoscopic two-play fundification when she developed postoperative symptoms of dysphagia. You have a barium swallow demonstrating a narrowing of the distal esophagus and a small hadal hernia and an intact fundification. How would you approach this patient in clinic? Well, the, the beginning evaluation of these patients uh, starts with a very, very careful history. Uh, there's little that you can examine on physical examination uh, to tell you what's happening in the esophagus, but without question, the history and a review of the patient's barium swallow gives a, uh, uh, lights the pathway for what, what needs to be done. And so there are, there are a number of um, pertinent questions and answers that need to be obtained from this patient. Perhaps one of the obvious questions is why is this patient in my office as a failure of two prior anti-reflux operations? And one would ask the question, why did operation one fail in the first place? And why did operation two fail in the first place? And what am I supposed to do about it? so that this will be a happy patient. Now, you've given me a case scenario about a 65-year-old woman. I would like to know whether this is a 65-year-old, what her habitus is. Is she obese? Uh, and uh, and that, often, that often is, um, is not adequately appreciated now. Uh, probably 20 years ago, uh, every thoracic resident could recite 
the indications for a transthoracic hiatal hernia repair. Uh, it was debated at that time whether hiatal hernia operations, anti-reflux repairs, should be done transabdominally or transthoracically. But where there was general agreement was, if you had to operate, if you had a patient who was very obese, the approach was much easier coming down from above and going up from below. If you had a patient who had an esophageal reflux stricture, uh, all the anti-reflux operations require sutures between the stomach and the distal esophagus in achieving the fundoplication. And if you had to sew into an inflamed esophagus that had a stricture in it, uh, those, those sutures weren't being taken into healthy tissue. So therefore, you could surmise that doing a fundoplication in the face of a stricture uh, would result in an inordinate uh, recurrence rate. And in fact, the series of the Belzy hiatal hernia operation in nearly 900 patients reported three times the uh, incidence of uh, recurrence if the operation were done in the face of a stricture. And so that was another what we called a recurrence risk factor. Obesity was a risk factor for recurrence. A stricture was a risk factor recurrence. A redo operation where either the operation, prior operation had torn apart or you had to take it apart in the process of doing a, a redo operation, you again would be suturing into distal esophageal tissue that was not healthy. Um, might need to do an esophageal lengthening collis procedure so that you could, you could operate, uh, you could sew around a healthy tube. So, and then the patients with parasophageal hernias, giant parasophageal hernias, which Griff Pearson demonstrated years ago uh, were associated with shortening. The, the esophagus has been up in the chest for years and these patients were typically elderly. Uh, a muscular tube that is not under any pressure being stretched out, as it ought to be below the diaphragm, contracts and the ability to reduce the distal esophagus, not just the GE junction, but the distal three to five centimeters that need to be wrapped below the diaphragm is limited when they're shortening with a parasophageal hernia. So our residents would respond, what are the recurrence risk factors for, for uh, anti-reflux surgery or hiatal hernia operation? And it was obesity, a stricture, a redo operation, a giant parasophageal hernia. Over the years, with the increasing popularity of laparoscopic operations, the answer to any question that deals with a hiatal hernia procedure or an anti-reflux operation is latinism. And the realization that there are certain factors that absolutely increase a patient's likelihood of recurrence has just sort of fallen by the wayside. And it really sets the stage for the type of patient you've presented today. So we may have our 230-pound, 5'2 woman who complains of terrible heartburn, and she's given proton pump inhibitors, and she continues to have terrible heartburn 
and she gets referred to the surgeon for a fundoplication by her frustrated gastroenterologist, and she gets that first operation, which she never should have had in the first place, mm -hmm. and it sets the stage for a recurrence. So think about this woman who may have been obese, had a laparoscopic fundoplication, had a disruption of the repair, as the fundoplication went up into the chest a little bit, she could have had some esophageal dysmotility, uh, dysphagia, uh, food sticking, as, as the scenario implies. Uh, and she returns to her gastroenterologist who discovers that she has a recurrent hernia, small or large, it's a recurrent hernia, and back to the surgeon you go. The operation that this patient had indicates that she had some, there were some concerns about dysmotility because she was complaining of dysphagia and they only did a partial, a toupee fundoplication and it was shown years ago that a partial wrap is never as effective as a complete wrap in controlling reflux. But because the surgeon was concerned about dysmotility, did a partial wrap. Well, any patient who has a recurrent hernia, if they have manometric studies done, are going to be found to have dysmotility because there's some degree of outlet obstruction of the esophagus and they have dysmotility that you can measure and record. But to take the giant step forward and to alter your operation because, oh, I'm going to be asked to do a fundoplication in a patient with dysmotility and I don't want to increase the dysphagia, so I will do a partial wrap so the patient won't have dysphagia. And we still have our 230-pound woman who hasn't lost an ounce coming up for operation number two, and she gets a reoperation with a toupee fundoplication and now has failed that and is presenting with dysphagia again. Now we've jumped forward and we haven't talked about the, the medical treatment of reflux. But number one on the medical treatment, believe it or not, is not PPI, it's weight reduction. And so often when you talk to these patients and you get a good history, their, their failure of medical management that justified, in quotes, their failure of medical management that justified an anti-reflux operation was failure of PPI therapy, and they really never were on a concerted effort to lose weight, to watch their calories, to start exercising regularly, walking three miles a day, doing things that really can work if the patient is motivated. So my approach when referred to a patient like that is if the patient doesn't care enough to modify their lifestyle to avoid an operation, and I'm certainly not going to be caught up doing an operation that has an obvious increased risk of recurrence and an unhappy patient and a bad result uh, in a patient who just is essentially too lazy to get involved with their own care. So this scenario that you've presented, I would hate to tell you how often it's just this story of failed fundoplication then somebody's done, or the same surgeon has done another fundoplication that failed for the same reason that the first one failed. They had a good operation, but it was done in a patient destined to have a, a recurrence. 
and they failed again. So now, this patient has complained of dysphagia and has been going to her gastroenterologist, and the gastroenterologist has been doing dilations, and the patient complains that she still has dysphagia, and now the gastroenterologist throws up his hands, I've been dilating this patient, and you need to get your esophagus out because there's nothing more we can do conservatively. And here's, here's the patient lands on our doorstep. Um, a number of questions now have to be asked. And I will tell you that after enough years of getting gray hair and assessing the long-term functional outcome of esophageal replacement, that's just not getting a post-operative barium swallow and sending the patient out the door after surgery. It's how are they three and five years later? Are they swallowing comfortably? Do they have regurgitation? Do they have dumping symptoms? Are they satisfied customers? Are they, will, they, will they tell you five years after surgery in answer to my question, if faced with the same circumstances <coughs> that you were presented with after when you had your esophagus and had a little bit of dysphagia, would you do the operation again knowing what life is like now? And very cognizant of, of those functional outcomes. How does an esophageal substitute function as esophagus, as an esophagus? I feel this uh, need to be the patient's advocate and to make the patient prove to me that there's absolutely no alternative but, but to get the esophagus out uh, and uh, in an effort to improve their quality of life. So, this patient's had some dysphagia. Has this patient lost weight? Or is this patient still her dainty 230 pounds and every now and then she feels a meatball stick in the low retrosternal area as she swallows it whole and it sticks a little bit. She doesn't vomit. She hasn't lost an ounce. She just thinks it's inconvenient that every now and then something sticks and she has to wait for it to go down. She either hasn't chewed it well or she, or she needs some water to wash it down. But life's not perfect, but could be worse. So in defining dysphagia, is it an intermittent nuisance problem or is it severe intractable dysphagia? Doc, my food sticks down here and she points to the lower retrosternal area and I throw up with every meal and she's losing weight and she's aspirating at night and life is a misery because she has distal esophageal obstruction. So key to this discussion is are her symptoms really those of an annoyance or those of uh, symptoms that are definitely impacting her quality of life. Now the uh, patient, this patient with dysphagia is referred in with the implication that dilations of this stricture haven't been working and so when you take the esophagus out, well the question is does this patient really have a stricture? The barium swallow shows some says narrowing of the lower esophagus. How high, how high grade is the stricture? How narrow is narrow? Is it just a mild narrowing? The length of the stricture, the width of the stricture, 
at least the narrowing seen on barium swallow, and then key to this discussion are your findings on endoscopy. You can look down the esophagus and the scope goes right through the area. Are we dealing with neuromotor problems, spasm, dysmotility in the esophagus, or a true stricture? And the implications are, are obviously quite different. And then there's the patient's response to dilation. So when I ask the patient, do the dilations help? If the patient says, the minute I walk out of the office, the first bite of food I eat, food sticks again. That's a different story than if the patient says, yeah, doc, I'll swallow well for a couple of weeks, then gradually over maybe by a month it's sticking again and I, I don't want to go back and have another dilation, so I sort of tough it out at home for a while and then I return to see the gastroenterologist, so they're being dilated every few months and, uh, and they have this dysphagia going on. But that bit of history, that a dilation works, that they absolutely swallow better following the dilation is a critical piece of the puzzle. Um, there's an old uh, rule of thumb that an esophageal stricture that is 12 millimeters or less in size will be associated with dysphagia. So for example, if you have a patient whose x-ray shows a Schatzky's ring above a hiatal hernia, if you walk up with a ruler and it's 12 millimeters or less across at the point of the, of the uh, ring, that patient will inevitably complain of dysphagia. Whereas if you see a Schatzky's ring, deformity is two centimeters, centimeter and a half, in a patient who just had the ring picked up as an incidental finding on a barium swallow, they'll have no symptoms at all. So the rule is um, a, uh, the uh, one millimeter is three French. So if you have a 12 millimeter opening on x-ray, the point of stricture, that corresponds to about a 36 French dilator. Now, failure of dilation therapy uh, is uh, dependent on the definition of what an adequate dilation is. If a patient can swallow a 46 French dilator or larger, 46 is the magic number, and if you can get a 46 French dilator down the esophagus, down your esophagus and my esophagus, that's a normal sized esophagus. Mm -hmm. So a patient who can get a 46 down, which is my general target for dilation, will not have dysphagia. So the patient referred in for, for uh, an esophagectomy because of failure of dilation therapy. It behooves us to get those records and so that we know if the patient's having a little 10 or 12 millimeter balloon. So the patient referred in uh, as a failure of dilation therapy who hasn't been getting anything larger than the mid-30s through there by the gastroenterologist, of course, is going to have persistent dysphagia. So these are important questions uh, that, that go into my decision about what treatment, the treatment option ought to be. I would want to scope the patient and see if there's a true anatomic stricture or if the scope just falls through and the narrowing is a function of previous two operations of fundoplication or some spasm in the distal esophagus. 
Uh, and then in my clinic, uh, if the patient utters those words that they've had some good response to dilation, a week, two weeks, any positive response, then my next um, step is to have the patient swallow dilators in clinic. Now, we have an entire drawer of, clinic, of, uh, of dilators in, in our clinic that begin with 28 and go up to size 60. Maloney, flexible taper dilators. Um, that's not common in a, in a surgeon's office, but if you're going to do esophageal surgery, it would behoove you to make it common. And um, you would be surprised how patients can swallow dilators with no sedation, with no anesthesia, uh, and come in and out of the office in a minute or two and go out and have lunch. Do they prefer that to coming into a gastroenterology or an outpatient surgery clinic, uh, getting up how many hours before they have to be there, arriving, having an IV put in, uh, getting conscious sedation, having their procedure that also takes three to five minutes to do, and then being recovered in a recovery room setting for the next three to four hours, and it's an entire day out of their life for something that doesn't achieve anything better or any safer than having the patient swallow and direct the dilator where it needs to go. So this picture of having the patient sitting in a chair with your foot against their chest and you're ramming a, a sore down their esophagus is not quite the way it is because the patients will cooperate and will swallow a dilator and once it's, the tip is by the upper introitus, a lubricated dilator will just slide down the esophagus and come out of the esophagus without any problem. And so in a patient like this, I would pass a 36 and then a 40 and then a 46 dilator just to give them the experience of a small dilator and then, be, and then a little larger. And each time a patient does it, they become more and more at ease with the procedure. So if I were successful in passing a 46 dilator down this patient's esophagus, when she came to see me in clinic, just as you described, uh, I would tell her, I want you to fairly assess your response to this dilation today, and if and when you start having trouble swallowing again, I want you to contact the office, give me a call, and let's do another procedure and determine how often you really need to have these done. Now, there are many patients who will stop in once a year, just as I've described, and sit in a chair and swallow a dilator and go out and be perfectly fine, treat their reflux symptoms if they have reflux symptoms. This patient complains of dysphagia. If her dysphagia is relieved, she may have no symptoms. If she does have symptoms, she may take her PPIs and really give them a program of weight reduction and, and diet exercise. Um, if the patient's back in the office two weeks or a month later saying, well, you know, it lasted about two weeks, but it started up again and I held off a little, but I really need another dilation, then we start to pick up the pace. If there's a true stricture, a stricture it consists of elastic tissue. It's a scar, fibroelastic tissue. And 
Uh, like any elastic tissue or a rubber band, if you stretch it once and let go, it snaps back. If you take the rubber band and stretch the H out of it a thousand times so that <laughs> the, dilate, the, uh, the, the rubber band is floppy and you let it drop, it doesn't come back because it's lost its elasticity. Well, the key to winning with strictures is frequent initial dilation that then allows you to space out or eliminate the dilations in the future. So in a patient who requires a dilation within two to three weeks, four weeks after their initial session, I'll bring them back and dilate them again, and I'll say, come back in two weeks. Let's see how you're doing. And after a couple sessions, I'll tell the patient, I want you to reach up, and you hold the dilator. I'll hold the other end, the far end, but I want you to pass the dilator. And they know how it's supposed to feel in their throat, and they'll put the dilator in and take it out. I have them bring their wife, husband, significant other, and get used to this idea of swallowing the sword, as they call it. Uh, uh, not pleasant, but not the worst thing in the world, and with the gag, it's over. And when you think about a patient who has a complaint of mild dysphagia in the low retrosternal area, from a stricture, maybe, uh, with a little bit of occasional regurgitation, if we were to do my favorite operation, a transhiatal esophagectomy, and bring the stomach up to the neck, for that patient to have an anastomotic leak, 50% chance that there could be a stricture after a leak, although of course our patients never leak. Uh, but if the patient did have a leak, she could wind up with a stricture and cervical dysphagia instead of low retrosternal dysphagia. So then what would we have? Well, we have a patient who began with low retrosternal dysphagia and occasional regurgitation, and we would transfer it to cervical dysphagia and maybe a little regurgitation plus dumping symptoms that can really, and decreased capacity that can really affect the patient's life forever and ever. Not such a big problem in the patient with cancer who is grateful for almost anything you do to them. And they, when you look at their satisfaction with the operation in long-term follow-up, they give much higher grades, interestingly, than the patient with benign disease who's required an esophagectomy because the patient <coughs> with benign disease who comes to esophagectomy has invariably had multiple failed operations. And they are unhappy people to begin with because they have an operation that fails, they have an operation that fails, they're, they're dissatisfied. And it takes a lot to make them happy. And so while a patient who's recovering from esophageal cancer and is alive three to four years later when half the people that he knows more than that have died, uh, they're pretty glad to be around and they'll accept a little bit of dumping and a little bit of regurg every now and then and they think life is great. Whereas the patient with benign disease might not. And this is the reason that we're off on this tangent that we're on, on this discussion, because at face value, this was a nice lady coming in with a stricture that surgeons will start to salivate over, boy, there's a stricture and I can do an esophagectomy. And you have an obligation to prove that that patient truly has a stricture and truly won't respond to conservative management before you set off the pathway, because in the scenario that you've described, 
this lady has had two operations at her esophagastric junction. Uh, my operation of choice, if this comes to an esophagectomy, is to use the stomach as an esophageal substitute. After two prior fundoplications, <coughs> the fundus of the stomach may be so beaten up once it's taken down, fundoplication is taken down, that it's not suitable to use for an anastomosis in the neck. And so for patients who are multiple redo operations, I have to get a barium enema and assess the colon as a possible esophageal substitute and then be prepared to do a colonic interposition after a bowel prep should the patient prove to need an esophagectomy uh, and, and not have a, a good enough stomach to replace. Now, jejunal interpositions can be done just replacing just the distal part of the esophagus, but then we get into the intrathoracic esophageal anastomosis, which uh, for many reasons, which we may or may not have time for, uh, is not one of my favorite things to do to someone. But this is sort of the background information that, that we get into uh, esophageal motility studies, which seem to be a favorite answer on board examinations when you have such a patient who has narrowing of the distal esophagus and complains of dysphagia. Again, when a patient has had a fundoplication, there is some degree of relative, gastroenterologists call it outflow obstruction. So when you put a sensor in sensors into the esophagus, motility is just not normal. So esophageal manometry in such a patient to me is worthless. It's just, it has no value whatsoever. You're assessing the patient's response to dilation therapy and what their quality of life is like uh, with a dilation. Um, so again, I'm weighing, I am weighing in my mind the issue of ultimate quality of life with conservative management and keeping your esophagus, even if it means swallowing a dilator, learning the technique of self-dilation, versus an esophagectomy, an esophageal replacement with stomach. I know how to do that operation. It's a favorite operation of mine, but it does carry long-term morbidity that we have to be aware of. So the patient who we eventually teach esophageal dilation when I issue them a 46 French dilator for home use. I will tell them and their partner wants you to get up in the morning and pass the dilator one time each morning for a week and every other day for a week and every third day for a week and I want you to gradually increase the time interval between dilations until you can establish the longest period of time that you can go between dilations without having to do another one. And the number of people who will often see me in follow-up and say they're passing it once every six months or once a year, or some will say, oh, I pass it every month. And I say, well, what, are you having trouble swallowing? No, but I'm afraid I'm going to get out of practice, so the first of each month or the first Sunday, I pass a dilator with my wife, and we just make sure we can still do it but they have their esophagus and they have a good quality of life. If we take the alternative scenario that this is a patient that has a severe distal stricture, it's not responding to dilation therapy, it truly is not dilatable, meaning that the patient 
doesn't do well whether she's dilated or not, and you come to esophagectomy. Again, I would approach this patient uh, for a transhiatal esophagectomy and a cervical esophagogastric anastomosis. Inevitably, when you're doing a redo uh, after, after prior fundoplications, the stomach will be adherent to the diaphragm and to the adjacent liver, uh, and the fundoplication must be taken down in its entirety because you have to use the tip of the greater curvature of the stomach as that point it's going to reach to the neck. So you can't just go in with the idea that you're going to staple across the fundoplication and throw it away, that part of the stomach, because you will not get a cervical esophagogastric anastomosis out of that. I personally am not willing to accept an intrathoracic esophagogastric anastomosis, as wimpy as that may sound, because I've lived through the era of median stenitis and its 50% mortality and trying to reoperate on these people who have a whole and tremendous inflammation at the anastomosis that can't be redone and you have to take it all apart and leave them with a spit fistula and drop the stomach back into the belly or do you have to try to patch it up and throw some, some mediastinal fat over the hole and keep your fingers crossed where usually it doesn't work. Uh, they're sick. It's a horrible thing and for those of us who live through the era of intrathoracic esophagogastric anastomosis one after another and to go back to that is, uh, is very difficult for me to accept. So to me, the best anastomosis on the esophagus is a, is a cervical esophageal anastomosis where a leak will drain externally, as a rule, once the neck wound is open, and not internally causing medium stenitis. Always exceptions to every rule, but that's usually how it works. In taking down the fundoplication, which has to be done, it's very easy to focus on dissecting on the stomach and cutting the stomach uh, away from adjacent structures. Uh, you must focus on minimal, minimizing trauma to the stomach. So if you have to take a little rim of diaphragm, if you have to take the capsule of the liver uh, and use cautery on the liver to get the stomach freed up so that you don't have a blue traumatized stomach that you freed up at the expense of devascularizing the tip. Uh, that's what you need to do. Um, so that is a key technical point that you, you're, you're better off taking uh, a rim of diaphragm, superficial diaphragm, or capsule of the liver if need be in freeing up that stomach when you take it down. Uh, Needless to say, a pyloromyotomy is key, a gastric drainage procedure, in my opinion, is key to minimize the chance of, of uh, outlet obstruction that follows an esophagectomy and dividing the vagus nerves, particularly in patients who have had multiple prior procedures. And then we still routinely advise a, a jejunostomy feeding tube as an insurance policy should there be an astomotic problem, uh, and I've never been sorry that I've had a genostomy too, but I've certainly been sorry that I haven't, and I, I think it's part of esophageal surgery, and it's just better to do a good, a good feeding genostomy too. No fancy catheters, it's a Robinson catheter, put in something that you know will work, and uh, and give you a good 
feeding conduit should you should you need it. One comment on post-operative complications, post-operative course. Uh, that's a common question. What is the expected post-operative course? The expected post-operative course is directly related to the preoperative preparation of the patient. I don't say that lightly. But when I talk to patients about having an esophagectomy, since this is Michigan and we like to talk about the team, the team, the team, I tell them that a successful outcome is a team effort, that I'm half the team, I know my job, but they're the other half. And if they do their part, they'll come out relatively unscathed. If they don't, don't look at me as the cause of their grief. So what do I mean by that? I mean that if I tell the patient I want them to lose weight, I mean I want them to lose weight, and I will, and I will withhold an operation until they lose weight and at least demonstrate that they're willing to get with the program. That means 20 pounds or 30 pounds in our 230-pound lady, she's still way too overweight, but at least she's, she's demonstrated her ability. Although I, I think that somebody getting their esophagus out so that they can eat better when they have a BMI that's way in the very obese range is, is not in the patient's best interest. But preoperative conditioning involves walking. I ask them to walk three miles a day to condition themselves for early post-operative ambulation. I walk three miles a day and, and, and I ask them to do no less. We issue an incentive inspirometer at the patient's very first visit. And I teach them myself. I don't send them off to some fancy clinic. I teach them myself how to use the incentive inspirometer. And I have them do it 10 breaths three times a day. And to bring their spirometer when they ultimately come for surgery to pick up right where they left off. And I emphasize to them that our expectation is no intensive care stay, which is the case in 96% of our patients that they're up and walking the next day, and that while it's difficult to move around with all the tubes and the drainage system and so forth, that's what they'll be expected to do. And if they do it, they won't get phlebitis, and they won't get pneumonia, and we'll have a nasogastric tube out on the third day, and they'll be, they'll be starting some oral liquids uh, and moving along with their diet within the week, and hopefully seven, eight days after surgery we'll go home. So, Extirpative surgery is different than functional surgery. So you can take somebody's appendix out or somebody's gallbladder out and a successful operation is the organ in the bottle on the table. When you're doing an operation to improve function, to control reflux, to make dysphagia better, uh, and organs are staying in, uh, it requires much more finesse and more care and more judgment it's much more difficult. So this decision that you've presented about taking somebody's esophagus out for benign disease should not be made lightly. It's a, it's a serious problem that can surely have consequences for the patient long term. It's fun to take out an esophagus, but it's not fun to follow these patients along who aren't happy with a good functional result long term. Very good. Thank you very much.